Good morning, sleepy people. Good morning, friends. This is Vlad, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Josh, for the Sleepest Podcast. How are you this morning, sir? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Got a good night of sleep, and I'm ready to roll with this super exciting episode. We have Dr. Robert Zilzer. The man is an absolute genius when it comes to obesity, and as we've been learning, one of the critical pieces of sleep is being able to breathe at night and one of the easiest ways to not breathe in your sleep is to have excess fat around your throat excess adipose tissue <laughs> dr zilzer comes from the scottsdale weight loss center where he is the co-founder and the co-chair of it he is an obesity medicine certified physician he has a wealth of knowledge and experience in obesity and i thought he would be such a great guest to join us to talk about this subject and unfortunately, I wasn't able to uh, make it to record the podcast, but uh, listening to it was super interesting. A lot of stuff I didn't know, uh, a lot of interesting facts, and definitely uh, there is clearly a correlation or a link between getting good sleep and uh, having a healthy body weight. Yeah, and it's it's interesting what we'll learn in this episode is it's really a two-sided relationship. If you are if you have excess weight, you're not going to be sleeping well, and if you're not sleeping well, you will start to put on extra weight. So it is a and fascinating discussion. One of the interesting points that he made is, you know, you can eat well and you can exercise, but if you're not getting good sleep, it's not going to help your weight losses as significantly. So it's really critical to get good sleep when you're trying to uh, live a healthier lifestyle. Absolutely. Well, we're not going to wait any longer. This is episode number four of the Sleepest Podcast with Dr. Robert Silter. The first half of my career, I was a primary care doctor and I took care of both adults and children. And I spent the better part of my career putting people on blood pressure pills and diabetes pills. You know, so in primary care, people tend to develop illnesses, many of which are caused by obesity, the, the biggest being high blood pressure, diabetes, and high cholesterol. <clears throat> but obesity affects pretty much every organ of the body. And our model in medicine is to put people on pills because it's easy and it doesn't take a lot of time, but it obviously does, doesn't treat the underlying problem. Mm-hmm. So what I had always said is, if I can find a way to help people lose, you know, 50 pounds or more and keep it off, I'm going to leave primary care. So <laughs> I developed expertise in weight management through uh, training and became board certified in the field of weight loss medicine that we call obesity medicine. Mm-hmm. And so for the past, uh, since 19, uh, sorry, since 2006, I have been doing full-time obesity medicine. And as a result, now I spend my days getting people off of blood pressure pills and diabetes pills uh, and cholesterol medication and getting people off of their CPAP machines and things that, that make them feel like they're very sick when really the treatment is weight loss. You alluded to the fact that sleep is uh, affected or impacted by obesity. What is that connection? How does obesity impact uh, someone's quality of sleep? As people gain weight, several things happen. And as as I mentioned, every organ is affected, and that includes your lungs and your airways. As you gain weight, the the fat that deposits around the organs in your abdomen actually push on the diaphragm, and the diaphragm is that muscle that sits between your abdomen and your chest. 
So your lungs actually mechanically get smaller as you gain more and more weight so that you're not exchanging as much oxygen. The other thing that happens is that as you gain weight, fat deposits around your airway, and there's muscles in your airway and there's soft tissue, and the soft tissue contains fat. And as you gain weight, what can happen is that the airway uh, starts to shrink so that when you relax and you breathe in, the airway actually gets, uh, becomes, like it sucks in and becomes obstructive, obstructed, and that's called obstructive sleep apnea. Is there any other kind of sleep apnea, or is it always called obstructive? There is another type of apnea that is basically originating from one's drive to breathe, that basically it's when you fall asleep, your brain just tells you, you know, his brain is normally responsible for involuntary breathing. So when you sleep, you're still breathing. <clears throat> and uh, central sleep apnea is the type of, of, of not breathing because of your brain. There's something wrong with your brain. So that's usually a neurologic problem rather than a mechanical problem like an obstructive sleep apnea. And many people have combinations of both. But the problem with having sleep apnea is that we need to we need to have a certain amount of restful sleep that we call REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. And mm -hmm. that is the type of sleep that causes us to rejuvenate and uh, recover from from the day. So we know that sleep is critical. Well, when you have sleep apnea and it's untreated, your airways become blocked as you breathe in, and actually, while your diaphragm is trying to move, you won't move any air because it's obstructed and your oxygen level will actually drop, mm -hmm. which then causes your brain to say, hey, I'm not getting enough oxygen, and you actually will wake yourself to a lighter level of sleep. So every time you go into a deep level of sleep, you stop breathing, and then uh, you wake yourself up to a lighter level of sleep or maybe wake up fully, and it's basically the same thing that prisoner of war victims, you know, suffered when they went to Vietnam. They would sleep deprive people, and they become uh, depressed and and often psychotic. So it leads to many many health effects. It increases your blood glucose, can lead to diabetes. So that is how weight gain. One of the main reasons why weight gain affects your sleep is there an inverse correlation meaning if i'm not sleeping well does that also reflect on my weight gain as well or is it just the sleep apnea that we're concerned with if you look at large populations of people and kind of measure their weight and ask them well, how many hours are you sleeping we believe that the sweet spot is seven to nine hours per night and then if you get less than that uh, your body actually will secrete higher levels of cortisol and insulin. Uh, the, uh, cortisol is the stress hormone, and insulin is a fat-building hormone. And as a result, you actually develop insulin resistance, and it also lowers your metabolism. Uh, you also have a higher level of a, of a hunger hormone we call ghrelin. Mm -hmm. So lack of sleep... If you compare uh, someone who, who sleeps six hours, sorry, seven hours to someone who sleeps four hours, the person who sleeps four hours will actually burn 400 fewer calories per day compared to the person who sleeps seven hours. 
Wow. So as and that's a result, the metabolism slowing down. Exactly. So night shift workers, for example, are almost always much more overweight than day shift workers because they just don't get enough sleep. I was just reading that night shift work has been classified as a uh, carcinogen. It's interesting because it sounds like there is a, a two-sided um, vicious cycle happening here, meaning if you're not sleeping well, you're gaining weight, and if you're gaining weight, you're going to sleep even worse. So how do you, how, how bad would you say this problem is in the U.S.? Uh, first of all, the obesity piece. How, how severe would you rate the obesity epidemic if there is one in the U.S.? Well, about one-third of Americans have obesity, and one-third of Americans are overweight, meaning mm -hmm. below the rate of rate, the level of obesity, but above the healthy weight. So you're basically talking about a, a medical disease that affects two-thirds of all Americans. So this is the number one health problem. It's the, really the number one driver of healthcare costs because obesity drives uh, cancer, as you mentioned. So there's about a dozen cancers that are caused by obesity. All mm -hmm. of the intestinal GI cancers, all of the gynecologic cancers, prostate cancer in men, so pancreatic cancer. Uh, so uh, it affects so many areas of the body and as a result is a big driver of healthcare costs and just a big driver of, of uh, poor quality of life because if someone has untreated treated obesity, uh, they're going to be tired all the time. Uh, they're often uh, results in depression. Uh, they probably will be more likely to develop arthritis of the legs so that movement is harder. They can't uh, exercise as easily. They can't do their normal activities. So you have a whole large part of our population for whom they're really suffering. And uh, unfortunately, they feel that it's their fault, that they're just, they just don't have willpower. And that's where we try to help them understand that this is really a medical disease like high blood pressure and we have effective treatment. What are some steps that, you know, somebody listening to this who is on that borderline obese or very close to it, what are some really proactive first steps that they could take? So one can try to lose weight on their own. Reducing food intake uh, is something that almost everybody who has lost weight has tried. So mm -hmm. in an ideal world, Someone would try to eat five small meals a day. They would eat lots of vegetables. They'd eat a modest amount of fruits during the day. So they're eating often, and they would begin some modest exercise, even walking, and see how that works for you. If you're losing weight, that's great, and stick with that. Uh, and as you lose weight, you need to become more active. That works for a small number of people. Some people find that when they uh, try to lose weight on their own, they become more hungry because the body fights weight loss. And um, they're not satisfied. They're, uh, they find it difficult. If that's the case, then that's where one needs to really go to a medical specialist, what we call an obesity medicine specialist, a doctor who has an expertise in helping people lose weight very quickly and keep it off for the long term. And the key here is losing it quickly, healthy, you know, safe, and keeping it off forever because 
In our experience, only a very small people who try to lose weight on their own are successful in doing so. What are some strategies that you employ with your uh, patients? When someone has cancer, you go to a cancer center, and that center has all the different facets. They may undergo surgery. They may undergo chemotherapy. They may undergo radiation. There will be multiple doctors involved. They're also going to deal with the emotional side because, you know, it's a, it's a major life stressor. So they'll have you uh, in whether it be support groups or counseling. And then once you've gotten the cancer under control, whether it be cut it out or at least uh, got it to a point where it's, it's something that someone uh, is now in control, the, the tumor is now stable and not growing, then you develop a long-term strategy for follow-up and maintenance of, of their medical condition. And obesity is very much the same. So if someone comes to me, there are four major categories that we focus on. I think of it as four, four legs of a chair, that to lose weight and keep it off, you need to do four things, and you need to do four things at the same time. And like the legs of a chair, if you pull one leg out, you may be able to hold it up if you lean back, but you know, if you rock the boat a little bit, you fall over. So you have to have all four components at the same time. So the first component is a nutritional plan or a diet that is safe and effective that gets your calories low enough so that you're losing weight quickly, but at the same time giving you all the nutrients you need. So we don't do true crash diets because a crash diet by its very nature doesn't give you everything you need. Uh, so protein, vitamins, minerals, electrolytes, water, essential fatty acids, those are the things that you need, and you need to get all of those things without overdoing it on the calories, and you need to eat off enough so that you're not hungry. The second piece is physical activity, and physical activity is a very small part of weight loss, but a huge part of keeping off the weight. So the idea is to start small, find an activity that you like doing and that you're willing to do and start small and increase from there. The third piece is lifestyle change. So when someone comes to see us, they will actually be entered in uh, classes. So we actually have group classes where people learn how to manage stress and mindfulness and how to plan vacations and how to meal plan, how to design the proper diet that you can live with and enjoy. And it doesn't mean being, being perfect because no one is perfect and the fact is you can be really successful and not be perfect. And then the fourth piece is the medical piece, which includes visits with the doctor generally uh, every week. Uh, so there's built-in accountability in that, uh, as well as, in many cases, the use of weight loss medications. And we now have you know six or seven different weight loss medicines that are very effective so that while you're losing weight, you're not hungry. Once someone, so that's how you get the, the, the weight in control. And then once you've gotten the weight to a healthy number where our patients have, are, have reached their goal, then they go into a maintenance plan and they continue to see us at least once a month for many months so that they really learn how to keep it off and we're, where, we're there with them to guide them because many people lose, lose a bunch of weight, but it was so hard for them that they've regained it. So as long as our patients continue to follow up, 
uh, they'll keep their weight off. And do you see a high success rate in your practice? Uh, if you look at someone with a BMI of 40 to 45, uh, that their average weight loss is around 47 pounds. Can you just explain what a BMI is for people listening at home? So if you take your weight and divide it by your height times a, a, a conversion factor, you'll come up with a number that's called body mass index. A body, and you can go online and just search body mass index calculator, and you can plug in your height and your weight. It doesn't matter what gender you are. It, generally, this is for uh, adults, so over over age of 18. You plug your numbers in, and you'll come up with a number. Uh, a number between 19 and 25 is a healthy weight or healthy BMI. Between 25 and 30, we call overweight. 30 and above is obesity, the term for medically overweight. And then once you go over 40, we call that severe obesity. So those are people who really have many health consequences as a result of their weight. Now, you can have health consequences at a BMI of 27. So there are many people who have healthy, what are healthy, what would be a healthy BMI, but they have excess body fat. So you probably have seen people that deposit fat in the middle of their bodies. The BMI is not perfect. So there are other measures of fat that we use that will tell us that someone actually is not healthy, even though um, their BMI may be normal. Let's say you had a magic wand right now, and you can just change one thing about standard American lifestyle or the standard American diet that would really make a significant impact all around, what would it be? I mean, where do we start as a culture? One of the easiest things is actually a very simple step. If every American did 10 minutes of physical activity per day, even if it's a fast walk or brisk walk, mm -hmm. ideally it'd be something getting their heart rate up a little bit. If every American did that, that would have such a huge impact on our, on our nation's health. So it's something that basically costs nothing, but would have an impact on reducing uh, the rate of obesity. So that would be one kind of obesity prevention technique. Uh, people would be more likely to gain less weight, maybe even maintain their weight. That would be my, my wish if I, if I could mandate. And there are some, you know, I think in, in Japan, is such a part of their lives. Every if you go out in the street, you'll see people doing uh, doing Tai Chi. Uh -huh. um, and China, that's as well. They do you know they exercise outdoors. So that's something that that we institute, and it actually doesn't take a lot. The benefit of going from zero exercise to 10 minutes a day is huge. You do get more benefit as you increase, but the greatest benefit is going from zero to 10 minutes. In the four facets to helping somebody overcome obesity. One thing that you, you mentioned was the support, the accountability, but also the, the support group that you form around that person. One thing that I've seen in the past is, and I have a friend who lost a lot of weight, and for them, one of the key pieces to their weight loss was not necessarily the calorie control it was really re-examining their relationship with food and in doing so they realized that there was some serious childhood trauma that they were still holding and carrying with them and that for whatever reason influenced their very unhealthy relationship with food later in their life how do you help people overcome that psychological barrier childhood trauma is a common trigger for weight regain 
whether it be abandonment or family separation or uh, emotional or sexual abuse, those are almost universally associated with someone's sudden increase in weight. And often until they get a handle on their, their, those childhood traumas, they struggle with their weight for the rest of their lives. So in those special circumstances, in addition to all the other four facets we talked about, many of our patients benefit from counseling with a psychologist that is has an expertise in, in both trauma and weight management. And it takes a lot of courage for someone to to be ready to heal. So uh, it's transformational for us to see people who have been held back and really have an open wound that they've never really healed from, that as they're losing weight, sometimes they feel worse emotionally because they've been using food to comfort and to numb out and uh, also to avoid dealing with with interactions so they use their weight as a, as a reason to isolate themselves. Part of our process is helping them help create a safe environment where they feel that they're ready to get that help. We have psychologists that have expertise in childhood trauma or adult trauma. So you're saying essentially that to overcome, it's not just a physical dependence on food, but there is that emotional factor. And, and until they're willing to face that and overcome whatever deep-rooted uh, issue or, or strain that they're holding on to, that they really won't get to that next level uh, of sustainable weight loss. There are many people who never deal with those traumas who mm -hmm. are successful because they're really looking for other reasons to lose weight. For example, they want to improve their health, so it's not as much about looks, but, you know, they were scared because they're now needing insulin and we, they want to avoid insulin. So that is often enough of a motivator for them to make, make the changes. And there are some people who, as they lose weight, they become depressed or anxious. And that is often a sign of childhood trauma because they, we know that that sort of person is often using their weight to avoid certain things. The other piece of it is that Food has highly addictive qualities, especially foods that are high in uh, carbohydrates and fat that, you know, when someone is depressed, they'll often turn to those sort of addictive foods. Think of, you know, ice cream, salt, Don't sugar, have... fat, you know, combined, yeah. nuggety, you know, nuggety ice cream, that they will often use those foods to numb out and and to treat their own depression short term so if you're sad or lonely or anxious they'll often turn to foods like ice cream or chips which causes the brain to release serotonin which mm -hmm. for a very short period of time helps them feel better so dopamine because dopamine is is that reward pathway so sure. uh, one of the one of the medications that we use to help with cravings is called contrave and it's really effective in helping with that reward component so that people crave a lot less. And what does that do? Does that block dopamine receptors, or how does that work? Well, it actually it, uh, enhances uh, dopamine release. Uh, so it, it, it raises dopamine uh, and norepinephrine in the reward centers of the brain when combined mm -hmm. with it's a, two, it's a, a medication that has two components in it. And the two work synergistically to, uh, to enhance dopamine release and norepi release.
You mentioned ghrelin earlier. Can you speak to that just very quickly a little bit, what it is and, and how it works and why we have it? Ghrelin is a hormone released in the lining of the stomach and it circulates through the bloodstream and there's receptors in the brain, in the uh, hypothalamus, which is an area deep within the brain that controls uh, when we eat, how much we eat, so it's our appetite center. Uh, the ghrelin levels go up before breakfast, lunch, dinner, and in the evening. So there's four peaks during the day. When you eat, those levels come down. So we know, we've learned that people who have higher ghrelin are more hungry and uh, that certain foods have a greater effect on, on ghrelin. We also know that once someone has lost weight, anytime they go, go below their lifetime highest weight, they have higher baseline and peak levels. Their overall ghrelin levels are higher. Ghrelin is spelled G-H-R-E-L-I-N. We know that once someone has lost weight, those higher ghrelin levels, which make them more hungry, last forever. So that's why keeping off the weight on your own is so difficult. We have the benefit of special diets and special weight loss medications to help them overcome the body's own desire to regain weight. And can you say the name of your clinic, just so people know? Our practice is Scott's the Weight Loss Center. So we have uh, clinics throughout the Phoenix uh, metropolitan area. So uh, Glendale, uh, Scottsdale, Chandler, and Phoenix. So we help people who have struggled on their own to lose weight, uh, whether they have, again, 10 pounds to lose, 100 pounds to lose. And our website is scottsdaleweightloss.com. So that's how people can learn a little bit more about what we do. So typically when someone calls us, we will meet with them just to help understand where they're at and are they ready to lose weight because we know that our techniques are very effective, but we also know that someone has to be ready. Uh, so someone calls up, we'll sit down and talk to them and talk to them about what we know works for weight loss. And in most cases, people who come in are ready to get started. So then we get them into our program and uh, you know, they're off and running from there. What's cool is that their changes are, are quick. Patients typically lose about a, a clothing size per month. So by the end of the first month, patients are down usually between 12 and 14 pounds. By the third month, they're down around 32 to 33 pounds. So it's very fast. But our patients tell us universally that they feel great the longer they're with us and that they're not hungry, so they're not suffering. So this is always the easiest diet they've ever done and the fastest weight loss they've ever done. Do you partner with any clinics out of state that you uh, can recommend? There are obesity medicine physicians around the country. We've developed a program that is very comprehensive, and some centers aren't really fully comprehensive. So when one looks for a program, you want to find one that has all those four components that I mentioned. Uh, and you can go to uh, a website to look for clinicians that are board certified in obesity medicine, and that's called the Obesity Medicine Association. We do have patients who live out of state who come to see us once a month during their active weight loss, and, and, or people who travel, and they can do very well, so they don't always need to live right here in town. Getting back to the topic of sleep, how, uh, what do you do to improve your sleep, or what are you looking for uh, in your own sleep regimen? We, we often counsel our patients who are having difficulty sleeping. 
Sleep, number one, is something that you have to do with intention. So if you need to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and you don't even try to go to sleep until 12 or 1 o'clock in the morning, you don't have a chance of getting adequate sleep. So whereas many people use an alarm to get up in the morning, maybe you should use an alarm to tell you when to go to bed. <laughs> you want to make sure that you have seven hours of uninterrupted time in your bed in a, in a cool, dark room without noise, without a TV, without your cell phone, so you have a chance to go to sleep. Uh, several things. Uh, number one, you need to avoid your, your phone, your computer, TV within the hour before bedtime because by exposing your eyes to that light, you're actually tricking your brain into thinking it's daytime and you won't sleep if that happens. I try to avoid screen time just before bedtime. So you can read from a book or a, a, like the white LCD type uh, screen, like Kindle. you know, Kindle, but yeah. nothing that emits emits a light. Secondly, I don't have the TV on as I'm going to sleep, so the TV is off, the room is quiet, and I am fortunate in that I, do, I don't have a problem sleeping. And I try to go to bed and wake up around the same time each night so Even on because weekends. our bodies do best with routine. Even on weekends? Uh, there's some, uh, some variation on weekends, but we know that your brain can only kind of readjust its clock by about one hour per day. So if you mm -hmm. go outside of that, then you may end up throwing your, your clock off. But I do find that since I'm kind of in this routine of going to sleep, you know, around, say, 10.30 every night, um, I can stay within an hour of that and still do fine. But if I start going to sleep at 12 or 1 o'clock, then I'm going to have a, a couple of days of, uh, of get, trying to get back on schedule, and I may have difficulty sleeping. It's almost like jet lag. You will, it is exactly like jet lag. Jet lag is basically you know, your environment being in collision with your brain's clock. The circadian rhythm. Yeah, circadian rhythms are, are fascinating because about two-thirds of all the cells in our body are timed to our body's clock. And if you mess with that, you're going to develop all sorts of diseases, metabolic consequences, uh, uh, depression, anxiety, diabetes, weight gain. Uh, there are numerous uh, terrible effects that occur from having a clock that doesn't work. If I can just ask a, a little bit of a technical question on circadian rhythm, I know that your brain is one of the elements of controlling your circadian rhythm, and if I'm not mistaken, it's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. But is I also read recently that also the liver plays a role in circadian rhythm. Do you have a perspective on that? The liver does have a 24-hour clock. The body's met, uh, metabolic processes don't all occur at the same time. So different cells of the body are turned on and off based upon their own clock. The overruling regulator of your body's clock is sunlight. So the sun hits your eyes, the uh, light waves hit your, uh, the, the op optic nerves, go through the suprachiasmatic nucleus, suprachiasmatic nucleus uh, and that actually feeds back to the to the pineal gland in the Which in the brain melatonin. and releases melatonin. That mm -hmm. then sets it. It's kind of the atomic clock for everything else in our body. So, 
that is what tells the rest of your body what time it is. And then every cell in your body, including your liver cells, is then set to that and turns on and off. And there are other factors like when you eat. So certain, certain processes are obviously affected by other things like your muscles are going to be more active during physical exercise and your intestines are going to be turned on when you eat. So all of those are, are it's a very complex system and they all need to happen at the right time for us to be healthy. That's fascinating. And, it, and it's fascinating to just see the body as this one whole system. It's almost like an ecosystem that, that we're controlling uh, and, and not just one single organism. So uh, I, I do want to be mindful of your time. I know that we're coming short. Is there anything else that you want the listeners to, uh, any parting thoughts or any words of advice for the listeners before we go? Well, one of, one of the things I would say is that most people in our country try to lose weight on their own, and they do so by reading a diet book. And if that diet works, I would say, you know, if you want to try a diet, give it two or three weeks. If you're not seeing results, or if you lose weight and regain it, then get professional help. Don't, don't just jump from diet to diet hoping that if you read the right book or follow the right crash diet, you'll be successful. So my plea would be, if your weight is affecting your health, diabetes, high blood pressure, sleep apnea, if you've tried on your own and that's not working, or if you lose weight and regain it, then get professional help. And that's what we would hope is that people call us sooner rather than later so they haven't you know, it's one thing to gain 20, 30 pounds, but the longer you delay getting true help, the mm -hmm. more sick you're going to get. Obesity is a medical disease for all the reasons that we talked about. And we're trying to change the paradigm so that people stop trying to do this on their own because we know that that didn't work for high blood pressure. Uh, people who treated blood, high blood pressure on their own in the 50s we're told just go on disability and, and exercise and relax in hopes that somehow that would get their blood pressure down. Well, that didn't work, and those people would develop brain bleeds and strokes, heart attacks. So we learned that we better treat it by, through a doctor. And we, what we hope is that people who aren't successful on their own will get professional help from a, an obesity medicine specialist or a, a professional weight loss physician. Where can people find you? Can you just say your website one more time as well as any other, whether it be social media or any other outlets that people can read more about your work? If you Google Scottsdale Weight Loss, you'll find us. Uh, mm -hmm. Our practice is Scottsdale Weight Loss Center. We're on uh, all the social media outlets, including Facebook. Uh, we, uh, we have lots of tips on our Facebook page. That's good for people that are even outside of our, of our region. And our website is scottsdaleweightloss.com. Fantastic. Thank you. And I'll make sure to include links and in everything that, to the Scottsdale Weight Loss website, to the Facebook page. And thank you so much for joining. It's a super informative conversation. I can actually talk to you for hours because there's so many things about the nuance of weight loss and, and health that I can just, uh, we can go on for hours and hours. So I, I truly am grateful for your time. Thank you, doctor. Thank you for listening to the Sleepist Podcast, our URL is sleep.ist. My name is Vlad. My personal blog is vladit.com. If you have any questions, please visit us at the Sleepist website. Drop us a line, ask your sleep question, 
And remember, we are not doctors, we don't play them on TV, and anything you hear on this program should first be checked with your personal doctor.